Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And earlier this month, we saw what another end of the world could look like with the derailment of a train carrying toxic chemicals and spilling those toxins into the ground, the water, and spewing them into the air surrounding East Palestine, Ohio, and possibly for hundreds of miles surrounding the area, if not thousands. We have no idea. As we said yesterday, Cincinnati and Louisville's water systems are on high alert as the chemicals go down the Ohio River that the East Palestine explosion poisoned. During that conversation with the New Republic's Prem Thacker, we discussed what the derailment means in the bigger picture for the East Palestine community and the history of derailments in the United States. We also touched on what it means for those who erroneously believed a government should be run like a business and the dangers that entails for not only workers, but the public as well. Today, we're continuing that conversation by considering a possible long-term solution for addressing what is quickly becoming a railway crisis. In a few minutes, we will have the return of a guest who has been appearing on This Is Hell since the 20th century. Journalist Carrie Leiderson, who wrote the In These Times article, The Case for Nationalizing the Railroads, workers say now is the time to do the impossible. Carrie is also an author and assistant professor at Northwestern University, where she leads the investigative specialization at the Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. Carrie is the author of five books, including Shoot an Iraqi, Art, Life, and Resistance Under the Gun, Revolt on Goose Island, The Chicago Window Crisis Takeover, and What It Says About the Economic Crisis, which she discussed with us back in 2009. And Mayor 1%, Rahm Emanuel and the Rise of Chicago's 99%, which we talked to her about in uh, 2013. Carrie was on the show most recently in September of last year to talk about her new Republic article, Can Liberal Evanston, Illinois Atone for Its Racist Past? You can find out more about Carrie at her website, carrieleiterson.net. You can follow Carrie on Twitter at carrieleiterson1, the number one. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far? It's been super good, Chuck. I've been reading a self-help help book. Uh-oh, that's I, dangerous. I'm on a regimen of self-improvement, Chuck. Are you? Yeah. You're the Ben Franklin of This Is Hell. Yeah, it's just like that. <laughs> I'm going to electrify the key. I'm reading Getting Things Done by this dude, David Allen. He's awful. He's, all his examples are like, oh, when you're a CEO, it's really hard, and you got to tell your uh, assistant what to do, and what if your yacht gets leaky? <laughs> what if you have to choose a, a private uh, a private school for your horrible daughter? Oh, these are not relatable. <laughs> it's like that. I think the only self-help book, self-help book that I ever read was a book uh, called uh, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. 
Did it work? <laughs> you work here. Yeah. Oh, here I am. I got sent here by that book. That's funny. <laughs> it didn't, hasn't worked out so well for me. Yeah. Who is joining you in the booth today? Is the master of disaster, Will. Will Ippen, our newest producer here on This Is Hell. Welcome to the show. Howdy, Chuck. Happy to be aboard. Oh, wow, those are some great, fantastic first words for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here, and you'll be watching Dan, how he runs the show, and uh, figuring out uh, how it works. So thank you for being here. I I hate to jinx myself, but my week is actually going pretty well. And I learned that yesterday was one year since the beginning of my medical ordeal, which doctors said was so bad that I only had a 60-40 chance of survival, an ailment that landed me in the hospital for 15 straight days. Some listeners hypothesized, oh, and I hate when listeners hypothesize, some listeners hypothesized that what triggered the infection that nearly killed me was my taste for punchki, the Polish traditional Fat Tuesday fruit or cream-filled pastry that are absolutely delicious. However, that did not stop me from eating punchki yesterday, and not even near death will stop me from having another punchki when I get home from the show today. Also, if you do not like my pronunciation, I apologize. I'm not Polish, although my partner's stepmom thinks I am Polish, and I have been mistaken for being Polish many, many times in my life. So the way I pronounce punchki is the way I learned the word on the east side of Detroit in Hamtramck, which was once predominantly Polish and where my Polish bachi had a bar on Joseph Campo, which was inexplicably called the Lone Star, despite nobody in the family ever being from Texas. So how could I have a Polish grandmother if I'm not Polish? She was my cousin's Polish grandmother, but was not a blood relation, if you will, to me. So, I don't know. I love Punchki, and that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. And if you don't like it, please correct my pronunciation so next year it won't be so bad. Dan, more important than any of that, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and we have a ton of responses on Twitter and Facebook that we have yet to get to. Yeah, this question was electric. I know, and who electrified it? I think it was myself. That's right, Dan Hill was the one who came up with this very uh, kind of cliche question yeah. when it comes to a job interview, but a great question I'll for say, a question from hell. I threaded the needle. You did. Flawless execution. <laughs> exactly. Okay, the question from hell is where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in five years? And now that we've had three people say the mirror, do not answer the mirror. Person, The person with our favorite uh, answer to this week's question gets their choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff when you go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's moment? This week, Jeff kicks Roll Doll again while he's down. That's a good time to kick people, don't you think? Yeah, they're right down there. I know. I mean, why, you don't have to kick very far. It's where your down. feet are. It's kind of just is perfect. It's kind of just stepping, really. Yeah. It's really not <laughs> kicking at that point. Malicious stepping. <laughs> you are listening to the world broadcast premiere of this week's This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment. We are broadcast every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Chicago time today. As uh, today, we are participating in our home station's annual phonathon fundraiser, the one time every year 
well, two times we do it two Saturdays in a row, that we ask you to show your support for WNUR completely non-commercial and independent radio that has been part of the Northwestern University and Evanston communities for generations. I actually think it's been like 70 years now. This is how simply would not exist if it was not for Chicago Sound Experiment, and we truly appreciate the incredible support of everyone at WNUR, community members, as well as students. Over the 26-plus years we have been airing on NUR, support completely commercial-free independent college radio by visiting wnur.org donate, where you can see all the donation tiers, plus all the stuff you will get for donating, like, well... At the lowest level, you can get a surprise. Uh, maybe it's going to be a vintage sticker, postcard, fridge magnet, or airwaves for your Hairwave CD. Then there's the WNUR die-cut sticker by Northwestern artist Hannah Borishov, the WNUR short-sleeve t-shirt by another Northwestern artist, Cora Pancoast, the classic WNUR orange beanie, the WNUR tote bag designed by, yes, yet another Northwestern artist, Sarah Welford, the WNUR hoodie, and you guess it, it's by, again, a Northwestern artist, Gemma DeCetra, or a hand-picked vinyl record CD from NUR's archives. Show your appreciation for WNUR being the first station to air This Is Hell and now doing so for over 26 years by going to wnur.org slash donate. And as this is fundraiser February, our latest station to join the This Is Health family is CKUWFM, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, and they're in the midst of their fun drive. CKUW is a nonprofit volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air paid advertising as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit ckuw.ca, where you will see all of their donation levels. Coming up, nationalization of the railways could protect all of us from toxic trail train derailments train derailments like the one that happened earlier this month in Ohio. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth and we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. And uh, at some point I'm going to have to tell Dan who we've confirmed a second guest uh, just a couple of minutes ago. And so uh, I'll have to hand that information to Dan at some point. Truly revolting radio. This is hell and for many especially ceos in the railway industry there is nothing quite as revolting as the idea of nationalizing the railways and for many apologists for capitalism capitalism there's nothing quite as revolting as the idea of nationalizing well anything here to help us understand nationalization and how it could protect us from potentially deadly disasters I am very happy to introduce longtime guest on our show, journalist Carrie Leiterson, who wrote the In These Times article, The Case of Nationalizing the Railroads. Workers say now is the time to do the impossible. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Carrie. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Great to hear you and great to hear a smile on your face. I can hear it right over the phone. That's really great <laughs> to hear. <laughs> so you quote, you begin the article by quoting Ron 
Kamenkow, is that how you pronounce that, or is it Kamenkov? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Railroad uh, Workers United uh, General Secretary during a conference session in June 2022 about choke points in the supply chain. He said all 12 railroad unions have proclaimed themselves united. There could actually be a national railroad strike for the first time in almost 30 years. You had... In July, of, in July, 99.5% of the membership of the union, representing railroad engineers, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, voted to authorize a strike if legal hurdles were cleared. The possibility presented a challenge for the Biden administration. President Joe Biden had become known as the most labor-friendly president in recent history, while a walkout threatened to paralyze the economy with a potential cost of $2 billion per day. But the point of a strike, Carrie, as you know, as you've covered many times in the past, including your writing on Goose Island, is to, and the window company there, is to show how important workers are to the economy. The whole point is to show that power through paralyzing the economy. So if someone is opposed to having the economy paralyzed by workers striking, are they necessarily opposed to organized labor's most powerful uh, strategy, which is the strike? How labor-friendly can you be when you prioritize the economy over workers' most powerful action. Yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of railroad workers felt really uh, disillusioned and disappointed with the Biden administration, you know, for exactly that reason that you set up there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for for good reason, um, I, I can see why people are really disappointed. And I really wish the administration had, um, you know, not done what it did and just forcing through this deal. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, the, the roots of this issue go back so much further and just all, you know, the whole structure of the railroad industry and the way that these companies have been able to obtain um, quasi monopolies and just to, you know, do whatever they want in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, really getting it to the point where uh, we were in this situation where, you know, uh, workers felt like they had to strike and, um, and a strike would have been been so so paralyzing for the economy i um i mean personally i would have loved to see it happen and you know um that, that seeing the companies have to deal to deal with that but uh it's i think it's important not to just say that you know the strike should have happened and it's bad that biden didn't let it happen but really to look at the whole package which is why um, workers are calling for nationalization so you said that you would have been for the strike, but you also said that it would have paralyzed the economy. It would have had a negative impact on the economy. How do you think, just as an individual, I hate to, again, break it down to individualism, but how, uh, how do you think it would have affected you? How would have that strike affected the average consumer? Because we kept hearing on TV that this is going to paralyze the economy. What exactly would that mean for you and me? Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't really, you know, matter what I think about whether a strike should have happened or even how <laughs> it would have affected me personally. So I don't want to put the focus there. Um, I mean, there were really great points made that, you know, some life-saving medications and, you know, things that were actually um, necessary to uh, really keep people alive and healthy. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a way that those things could have been delivered, but you know, there would have been, there would have been really, really serious and um, ramifications of a strike, and you know, like pretty much any disruption probably would have hurt 
the most vulnerable people the most. Um, so, you know, a strike would have been a huge deal and it would have, uh, I mean, it would have interrupted, um, you know, Amazon deliveries right before Christmas, which would have been great in terms of kind of showing how some of our priorities are messed up. And, you know, I mean, that that impact would have been good. But um, uh, the bigger issue, you know, again, really isn't the strike. It's like all the reasons that workers got to where these 12 unions who had not been united for many years got to the point where they were ready to strike and um, and shippers themselves um, uh, probably didn't support the strike. But going back to April at these really crucial hearings before the um, the federal board that oversees railroads doesn't oversee them enough, but has some oversight power of railroads. Um, their workers and shippers were actually united in their criticisms of the industry. So, you know, there's these deep problems that aren't just about working conditions or workers' rights. There's just really deep fundamental flaws in the um, the power that these major railroad companies have obtained that, you know, really hurts everyone in a lot of ongoing ways that are maybe less dramatic than a strike, but are things that really need to be dealt with. And as you point out in your article, even the railway industry admits that the current situation is unsustainable. You write that the administration eventually negotiated a deal with union leaders and company leaders announced September 15, 2022, requiring a significant pay raise for workers without meaningfully addressing their primary concerns, short staffing and a lack of paid sick days. Many elected officials and pundits lauded the deal, but it still needed to be ratified by each union's rank and file. Three unions representing railroad workers voted down the proposed contract, while others voted for it. Then, in November, the country's largest rail union, the Smart Transportation Division, which represents conductors and brakemen, rejected the deal, and a national rail strike was firmly on the table. Even unions that approved of the deal pledged to honor any picket lines. So, is there some disconnect between what the rank and file wanted and what their union leadership negotiated? And if so, why that disconnect? Was that simply because that was the best that they could get out of ownership? Or is there a disconnect between leadership and rank and file? Yeah, so I mean, to lay a little more context, um, you mentioned Ron Kamenko. Um, when I met Ron probably about 15 years ago, um, he and others were in the early days of founding Rail Road Workers United, which is this really incredible independent labor organization, which brings together members of the 12 different unions that represent, um, formally represent different uh, types of railroad workers. So when uh, when I first met Ron and, you know, for most of the decade plus since then, these 12 unions um, were really at odds with each other. Um, it sounds like there was, you know, the actual rank and file of those unions um, had a, a lot of discord or lack of unity and definitely the um, railroad workers were really disillusioned with their own union leadership and the union leadership of the different unions. Uh, you know, would would play against each other and um, would really just, uh, as the, you know, as the rank and file tell it, um, the the union leadership would really work hand in hand with the companies, which you know is a, a problem that we see with a lot of industrial sectors. 
Um, so anyway, what's so remarkable about this point in time and what shows just how bad things have gotten, both for workers and for the railroad system in general, is the fact that um, even the the union leadership is uh, you know more ready more ready to take action than they had been in the past, um, and then even more so the rank and file actually. Um, having this huge degree of agreement that um, a strike would be necessary and, you know, really just seeing themselves as one united force as opposed to these different unions that were um, that were being played off each other and were sort of willing to be played off each other um, by management, you know, to in ways that ultimately benefited the employers. Um, so if that makes sense, you know, the fact that, um, I mean, one of the reasons it's been hard for a railroad workers to get better conditions all these years is because of the fact that these 12 unions represent them, not one union, and because of the fact that um, that they say union leadership has been too cozy with the companies. And that's one of the arguments for nationalization is that you could have a more unified labor uh, collective bargaining power and you know a more unified labor force, maybe one union or some different structure that's not these 12 unions and not this complicated process that we saw play out um, in the lead up to this possible strike. So one more question about uh, labor, and then we're going to get into nationalization, which is still going to be related to labor, obviously. But you write then on December 1st, 2022, at Biden's urging, Congress intervened, passing a law to force the unions to agree to the deal. Many railroad workers were furious and felt betrayed. You then quote Matt Weaver, legislative director for the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, the nation's third largest railroad union, saying it was very frustrating from the most pro-labor president America's ever had when railroads have record profits and profit margins, and yet this deal is imposed, we've seen that our labor is expendable. Yesterday, when we were speaking with the New Republic's breaking news writer, Prem Thacker, Prem writes and said on air that railway safety was also a concern of workers. Do you think the strike busting played any role in the East Palestine train derailment? Well, not the strike breaking itself, but again, the whole, you know, system that got us to the point where workers were ready to strike. I mean, safety was a major, is a major concern of workers. Like when you talk to railroad workers, they're not, um, I mean, they they want sick days and, you know, it's unsafe for them not, it's unsafe for everyone for them not to have sick days. Um, they definitely want better working conditions, but they talk even more about safety and about just the railroads running smoothly and efficiently and being able to do what they're meant to do, which is, you know, deliver um, goods in in the most environmental way possible. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, the, the strike breaking, I don't think um, directly played any role in that derailment, but, you know, that's exactly the type of problem that the workers have been bringing up is that um, because of this structure we have where companies are just turning such massive profits and are, are really um, driven by serving their Wall Street investors and, you know, um, allegedly cutting corners. Um, that's the kind of, you know, that's I've covered safety in the coal mining industry. It's like something you see in many industries. Um, it's, you know, it's not hard to understand that uh, when you have just an out of control um, profit driven industry and you have companies that don't have enough oversight from either workers or regulators, you know, that's when you have safety problems happen. 
We've had people on the show uh, here who have talked about nationalization in the past or renationalization of things that have been privatized and having them become public again. Uh, you write that the ordeal has also led many railroad workers and industry workers to consider a vastly increased role for the government in freight railroads nationalization. But to what extent do workers have the power to either instigate, motivate, or actually nationalize not only railways, but any sector of the economy? Does labor labor have that kind of power? Yeah, I mean, not, you know, necessarily in and of itself. I mean, these are four, there's more large companies too, but the four major railroads alone are turning, you know, four to $6 billion profits per year. So, I mean, that gives you a sense of like how huge and powerful these companies are. So, I mean, um, workers alone probably can't just nationalize it. Um, You know, maybe they could do a wildcat strike. That would be that would be dramatic enough. Um, but, you know, to actually take over the industry, I mean, um, work that's probably not realistic to say that the workers alone could just do that. But that's where if you have the general public understand the whole uh, situation better and you hear that, you know, shippers are unsatisfied, um, you know, regulators, the government knows the system's broken. Um, they've been basically acknowledging that, especially over the past year. You know, workers know that very well. So you get enough agreement that something drastic changes need to be made. And then you have all these stakeholders working together to hash out what that would exactly mean and, you know, how some form of nationalization could potentially be done in a way that's constitutional and in a way that, um, you know, actually makes things better for everyone. So everybody was concerned about the threat to the economy of a railway strike. So, Carrie, what is more of a threat to the economy, a national strike by railway workers or the continued private ownership of railroads? Because if the Biden administration's concern was for the impact a strike would have on the economy, it would stand to reason they would consider the ongoing impact privately owned railways have on the economy as well. So what's more of a threat to the economy, in your opinion, the railway or the workers? Right. I mean, it's one of those things that's, you know, the long term versus the short term. Um, If we just keep having this industry operate in the broken way that it has been and you have um, you have safety disasters like the derailment and, you know, there's I mean many derailments and workers deaths happening all the time. Maybe not many derailments, but, you know, too many, um, you know, and then you have the increasing um, inefficiency of just the way the railroads work. And, you know, if they're not working well, more freight is delivered on trucks, which has climate and public health impacts because um, the trucks have much higher um emissions proportionally. So, you know, you have prices go up if shipping is less efficient. Um, So you have all these bad effects on the economy, but, you know, they're over a longer time period and they're a little bit harder to quantify, whereas the strike would have been one really big dramatic thing also happening during the election season, which of course is one of the reasons that the administration was um, surely set on avoiding it. So, I mean, again, I don't think it's, you know, it shouldn't have needed to come to a strike period. Like if the workers had gone on strike, that would have, um, 
it would have been interesting to see, you know, what that galvanized. But um, and I, I mean, I do think they should have been allowed to. Um, but, you know, it's not even a question of like strike or not strike. It's like these this things really need to be changed. And nationalization is one way that um, workers and other experts are increasingly putting forth, you know, some degree of nationalization would be a way to change to change to fix or improve things. You quote a statement from the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America uh, General Executive Board stating that we demand that Congress immediately begin a process of bringing our nation's railroads under public ownership. And you add the union, which represents electrical workers in other sectors, argues that the major railroad companies like electric utilities are natural monopolies and have an endless thirst for profit. Could such a nationalization in railways lead to other so-called natural monopolies in the economy, like public utilities, being considered for nationalization? Is that the real threat to industry and ownership of a railway strike, that this could just be the first of, or not just railway strike, but of nationalization, this could just be the first of many nationalizations that would move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost the other way around. There's other industries like utilities, um, electric and gas utilities. Um, a lot of them actually are publicly owned and some of the publicly owned ones are terrible. So that, you know, shows that public ownership isn't a panacea. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot more um, government regulation and um, sort of public ownership and, and role for public input in the utility sector. So, so, you know, if anything, railroads, um, I mean, the utility sector is is a mess in many ways itself. Um, and there's, you know, we have the ComEd uh, scandal that happened over the past couple of years in Chicago. Um, you know, there's plenty of examples of how messed up the utility sector is. But uh, nonetheless, if anything, you know, railroads should for starters, be under more regulation and, you know, degrees of public ownership like utilities are. Um, I mean, railroads are, you know, they function basically as a public utility, you know, something that's, um, or well, they're not public, but, you know, they are basically a utility in the sense that it's something that's totally crucial for our economy and society to operate. And, and you know, they cross different states and they interact with, um, yeah, I mean, they play this role that, you know, there are any, and railroads laid the, actually the basis for case law for power utilities, electric utilities and gas utilities. Um, so it's long been recognized that, you know, railroads essentially are a utility, but yet um, they're not regulated or, you know, there's not a role for the public, even like there is in electric utilities. Um, so, I mean, the internet, I guess, is a, another uh, a thing that's sort of like the railroads in that it's, um, you know, privately run and owned, not that anyone owns the internet, but, you know, it's something that's totally crucial for our society to function. And I mean, the internet's newer, so it's understandable that it takes a while to figure out how to deal with it. But railroads have been around um, for almost 200 years and, you know, they've been robber barons and been causing all kinds of abuses for that long. So uh, we don't have the excuse that, um, you know, that we don't know what the problems are or how to deal with them with railroads. So uh, it really is, I mean, they really are kind of a, you know, a somewhat um, unique case in playing this crucial public role, but yet being entirely private and just having so much um, 
power, you know, being not only private, but lacking the competition that uh, could make the, you know, the, I mean, the whole concept of capitalism, you're supposed to have all this competition that, um, you know, that helps the consumer and, and helps keep things fair and efficient. And you don't really have that in the freight railroads either. Uh, so you have like the worst of both worlds, if that makes sense. It does. And you also point out that the union argues that nationalization is necessary both to protect workers and to fight climate change and railroad-related pollution that disproportionately impacts communities of color and low-income communities. And anybody who has ever rode on, uh, ridden on a, uh, an Amtrak train knows that because it's basically a mm. tour of low-income <laughs> and uh, communities of color. How can nationalization, though, how can that fight climate change? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um- um, because uh, there's an interesting dichotomy where freight railroads and Amtrak runs on the tracks that the freight railroad companies own, which is a whole other problem. Um, but we could talk about that more if you want. But basically, the, you know, the tracks do tend, and the rail yards in particular, where you have a lot of locomotives and other equipment that burns diesel, um, you know, uh, stalling and moving, um, idling and moving around. Uh, that causes diesel emissions, which are extremely dangerous for public health. And, you know, these do tend to be concentrated in communities of color and low-income communities. So there is this big public health impact from railroads and then a climate impact too, because uh, the diesel emissions, of course, are greenhouse gas heavy. Um, But at the same time, railroads are much more emissions efficient than trucking. So, you know, ideally you do want to shift and and say for travel, for individual travel, um, they're much more emissions efficient than planes. So, you know, you would reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions if you shifted more freight and more passengers to railroads as opposed to trucks and planes. And then railroads to some degree can be electrified like rail yards, the equipment in rail yards can really be electrified and um, trains themselves, you know, I guess freight trains, that would be a a longer horizon, but um, passenger trains can be electric and there's cleaner diesel. There's uh, all sorts of ways that, you know, essentially the rail sector can be made emissions can be greatly reduced and there are EPA mandates for the railroads to have to use cleaner diesel but um much more could be done in cleaning up the emissions from railroads so if you had a nationalized system um, instead of diverting massive profits to shareholders you could be putting that profit back into electrifying and otherwise um, making the industry more environmentally friendly and that would have the public health benefits for the local communities and it would have the climate change mitigation benefits by reducing greenhouse gases Um, and then you also you know by making a a better and more efficient and more user-friendly system um, through centralized planning that you could have with nationalization, then you could also theoretically shift more more freight from trucks to railroads and shift more passengers onto railroads. Um, So, you know, you both make the industry cleaner and you shift more traffic from dirtier forms to railroads. And, you know, that can all happen because you remove the, theoretically it could all happen because you remove the profit motive and you just invest money back into making it the absolute best system that it can be. 
Well, let's touch on Amtrak for a moment, because as I'm certain that you've seen on social media, there are these memes going around where there'll be like a half a dozen pictures of modern looking trains. The five of five of the six are in other countries like Japan and China and Belgium and elsewhere that, you know, high speed electric trains with a vast train system in Europe. And then the sixth picture is the picture of the East Palestine derailment explosion. So they're just trying to make the comparison to why, you know, our uh, rail system is very much behind many other countries. And you write the government already owns and maintains most highways and waterways in the country. So public ownership of railroad tracks and freight yards isn't a conceptual stretch. The National Passenger Railroad Amtrak is already quasi-publicly owned, though it Mm -hmm. operates as a for-profit entity rather than a public authority. It has more than 500 stations, and on an average day, riders made more than 33,000 trips, according to its 2021 annual report. That year, Amtrak brought in $2.1 billion in revenue, but saw $5.2 billion in expenses with the inefficiencies caused in part by its subservience to the freight railroads that actually own most of the tracks. So are freight railroads the cause or at least an obstacle for any lack of success or any lack of modernization for Amtrak? Yeah, positively, um, because we have this system where Amtrak runs on the tracks owned by the freight rail railroads and the freight railroads, you know, basically take precedence over Amtrak and like get to tell, you know, get to say where and when Amtrak can go there's some some guarantees that Amtrak has but for the most part Amtrak just operates at the mercy of the companies the freight companies that own freight railroad companies that own the tracks um so you know then Amtrak it's a vicious circle because then Amtrak's service is limited and it can have massive delays like back when there was um tons of fracked oil being moved by train from the Bakken area there'd be like the Amtrak that people love to take the Empire Builder that goes through Glacier National Park um that would could be delayed for days because it would have to wait for the oil trains to use the tracks first so you know the less um the you know the more delays there are with Amtrak the less people are going to use it so it's a vicious circle where fewer people do use it and um you know it's a quote unquote for-profit publicly owned essentially company, but it loses tons of money, um, which opponents of nationalization or of, you know, just the concept of public ownership will point to Amtrak as being this big disaster because it loses so much money. But, um, you know, it could be run in a much better way where it, uh, yeah, you look at the, in other countries, it's interesting, most other countries, including Europe, um, it's, Really, the focus is on passenger rail, like they're not moving freight on railroad tracks the way that we are. So most of those modern trains you see are the passenger trains. Um, but anyway, there's no reason we couldn't have a beautiful modern passenger system like that that would be clean and you know electric and um, would be really popular and hence would be more profitable because people would actually want to use it more. Uh, so that's where and the Biden administration is, um, you know, it's Biden's known for loving Amtrak, and uh, there is a a massive um, investment uh, promised in Amtrak, but even this investment can only go so far if Amtrak is still at the mercy of the freight railroads for the tracks. 
We are speaking with journalist Carrie Leiterson, who wrote the In These Times article, The Case for Nationalizing the Railroads. Workers say now is the time to do the impossible. You can find out more about Carrie at her website, carrieleiterson.net, and you can follow Carrie on Twitter at Carrie Leiterson and then the number one. You write the threatened railroad strike underscores how much the U- U.S. economy depends on freight railroads. It also exposes the fragility of a system owned and run in large part by four massively profitable carrier companies that act as de facto monopolies. So why not just break up the railway companies and continue to allow them to be privatized? Are the railway workers asking for breaking up the big railway companies as well as as, uh, nationalization, or is the focus just mostly on nationalization? What, What would breaking up the railway companies not do that nationalization could do? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And railroad workers, um, and, you know, obviously there's um, many thousands, I have the number somewhere in my story, many, uh, so many railroad workers, there's definitely no unified feeling about any of these things. But um, I think, uh, you know, some railroad workers like Ron just want nationalization and just think we should make this bold move. And do it whole hog and others don't really think that's possible, but they'd like increased regulation, which could um, include opening up more competition. And a lot of the non-worker experts I've talked to, um, including shippers and their representatives, uh, just want to see more competition. You know, they want to break the monopoly, quasi-monopoly stranglehold that these four or five companies have and um, allow more companies to compete to offer good service on the track. So, you know, for that to happen, you would need some form of either nationalization of the tracks or massively increased regulation of the tracks to allow companies that don't currently own the tracks to be able to compete fairly with the companies that do own the tracks, if that makes sense. Um, So, yeah, I mean, um, if you had, you know, still a private sector, but a lot more competition. Um, It could be that they would compete for good workers and have to treat workers better then and have to also, um, you know, serve shippers better, which would probably go hand in hand with treating workers better. um, Because, you know, you need uh, worker turnover, the shippers say that worker turnover is something that's really affecting them. Uh, So more competition could be good for workers, but there's also a situation where it could be bad. Um, Someone who emailed me about the story actually said it really eloquently um, in the sense that, you know, you have all these companies competing, so they need to compete for customers. So they want to slash their prices and part of their prices for shipping and part of doing that might be trying to pay workers less and less. So you could have this race to the bottom in terms of labor. Um, So it's hard to say exactly how it would play out. And a lot of that, you know, even if it remains a private sector with increased competition, it would be really crucial for the government to have or the public to have a strong role in regulating and in enforcing some kind of labor standards and in Yeah. So, you know, there's different ways that could play out. um, And a lot would depend on still the role that the government took, even if it wasn't actual government ownership. You quote Marilee Taylor, a retiring Burlington Northern Santa Fe locomotive engineer from Chicago, saying the idea of nationalizing the rails that strikes fear into the tenth of one percent of billionaires who own most of the wealth in this country 
it has to be under the control of those who actually know the railroads, which is not the suits. It's not the CEOs. It's those who work it. So railways had warned company leaders at Norfolk Southern that the railways were not safe. And Norfolk Southern had a derailment very similar to this one in East Palestine, but it happened in New Jersey in 2012, only 11 years earlier. I asked the uh, New Republic's Prem Thacker yesterday, asked him if this comes down to willful ignorance leading to purposeful, even criminal negligence. In your opinion, is this more about not ignorance or negligence, but greedy, quote unquote, suits and CEOs simply being incompetent and not knowing what they're doing. Is the problem not ignorance and negligence, but more so greed and incompetence? Mm. Yeah, it's probably a combination. And um, those things kind of play off each other. If you have people calling the shots, even if it's calling the shots indirectly, where you're a hedge fund investor who's, you know, demanding more and more profits, um, that sort of uh, helps the people who are maybe incompetent rise to, you know, the positions they're in. Um, So I think those two things, those two forces are just tied up together. Um, And I think, I mean, I really appreciate Marilee's point and other workers made the same point that if you're going to have public ownership, you know, you could have the same situation kind of play out with public ownership too. I mean, I mentioned the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which is a, a publicly owned um, power plant operator, which you know has a horrible record of safety and environmental injustice, and um, uh, you know some of the public utilities um, are terrible in a lot of ways. So you know having public ownership doesn't mean that workers are going to be treated well or that things are going to be run well. Uh, so that's where public ownership would need to come with a really um, democratic and. Uh, and stakeholder or, you know, basically worker um, driven uh, leadership structure. Like I mentioned this plum plan that was proposed in 1918 after the the um, railroads were briefly, or during the time that the railroads were actually briefly nationalized by Woodrow Wilson um, as a, a wartime thing. So this plan, which Railroad Workers United is really trying to shed light on as a model even for today, is that there would be public ownership and the rail system would be administered by um, a publicly owned corporation with a board that includes uh, workers and representatives of the general public um, on it. So, you know, you would have people People who really know the industry making the decisions and people who represent the different stakeholder interests making the decisions. So you wouldn't just have a couple of government bureaucrats who might themselves be um, incompetent, as you said, or, uh, you know, who might just um, still be trying to cut costs and, you know, meet some balance sheet even being publicly owned. So really, if there were a nationalization, like how it would be done and who would be, who would be um, the leaders and how democratic it would be, that would really be crucial to the success of nationalization or not. Yeah, so let's talk about that democratic public ownership for a moment. You quote Nick Wurst, the class one freight railroad conductor, telling you when we're talking about nationalization, people might think we're talking about taking control of an industry out of the hands of this wealthy corporate class and giving it to the same government that makes all kinds of decisions based on profitability. What I'm fighting for is democratic public ownership. 
So first, how is democratic public ownership any different from nationalization? And are there any examples of democratic public ownership here in the United States at this point? Would this be unprecedented? Yeah, and of course, you know, what exactly democratic means? Um, There's a lot of leeway there. Like, I don't think you'd want like a nationwide referendum for, you know, everyone in the country to vote on the nuts and bolts of running the railroads like that would, I'm sure, be a total disaster. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, Democratic, what workers are proposing is uh, they haven't proposed any exact structure as far as I know, but the concept that, you know, a um, workers and other stakeholders um, who have expertise and who are accountable to, you know, their own community of other workers and other shippers and other general public, um, that there would be, a you know, a more than a couple people calling the shots, that there would be some um, degree of, you know, consensus or collective, um, at least voting decision making, um, involving a number of people who are accountable to a larger number of people, you know, sort of a representative democracy structure, I would imagine. Um, And yeah, I mean, in terms of other um, models, I mean, that model is actually used with a lot of um, publicly owned utilities, and it doesn't necessarily work well. I've covered that sector and, you know, the publicly owned utilities can be some of the worst sometimes, even if they have this democratic structure in theory. So again, the, you know, the devil is in the details and in the implementation. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely not this concept of like, um, you know, the government just seizing the railroads and just starting to run them like out of the Department of Transportation or something. Uh, I mean, that would like actually seizing private property um, would be unconstitutional and would just probably not not fly uh, here. And um, and then how you actually run it, you know, I guess some form of democratic leadership um, that relies on, you know, experts and um, and analysis and science uh, is what people would like to see. And then there's the idea of you know, like things we've seen with Obamacare, you know, and people saying, well, can't we just come up with something like that when it comes to railways? You quote again, Ron Kamiko of the Railroad Workers United General Secretary being among the workers who prefer wholesale change. And now he tells you if the only choices are the status quo versus some form of regulation and restriction to rein the class one carriers in, then I suppose I would support the latter. However, just like regulating the health insurance industry, providing Obamacare or what have you, these are not real solutions. We need a national health care system. I think the same thing holds true for the railroads. So are public-private partnerships like that of Obamacare not the answer when it comes to railways? And if not, what does Obamacare teach us about such relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you think of almost anything, like even, you know, say you're trying to like, uh, uh, you know, do a a rehab on your house or something um, with so many things, Um, or you look at like the attempts to reform police departments, um, you know, when something uh, is really messed up, um, you can try to kind of do band-aids and, you know, kind of semi reform it or semi fix it or leave part of what you have in place and make it a little better. And, you know, often that's a lot better than nothing. But when something's really broken, and if you really want it to be better, 
you know, for perpetuity. Um, ideally, the best solution is often to uh, just really go to the the root of the issue and, you know, make really bold changes and do things that are probably really difficult and painful in the short term that lay the groundwork for, you know, a totally different and more sustainable um, system or structure for the future. So, you know, I think the railroads are probably like that. I mean, it's, it's really uh, pretty overwhelming to try to visualize like fully nationalizing and reforming this industry, but um, uh, to, you know, try to really have something that's different and works environmentally and economically and for workers in the future. Um, you know, it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of opposition and turmoil, like even to make small reforms. So I can definitely see the argument that we should dream big and really, you know, not do, I mean, Obamacare, I mean, made a lot of great changes for a lot of people, but, um, you know, all the, all the frustration and work and expense that went into Obamacare as opposed to really revamping and having a, a national health care system. Um, I mean, I think that is a good analogy. Um, if you're going to do something that's going to be so hard and big and confrontational at all, like why not do it the absolute best you can and have something that doesn't try to like cobble together different pieces, but that really starts starts fresh. And you quote Matt Hollis, a second generation railroad worker and national vice president of the Transportation Communications Union, uh, testifying uh, he's seen the complete and utter degradation of our nation's class one railroads over the past six to seven years. He went on to say, I've watched as private equity firms, which you were mentioning earlier, have acquired controlling stakes in railroads only to use their power to deploy business models that extract as much wealth as possible to the detriment of the railroad workers their customers, and ultimately the public interest. So how much is private equity driving greed that leads to less safe railways? Is Norfolk Southern suffering from pressure by Wall Street? And it's not necessarily their fault, but that of Wall Street investors' impact on the railways and private equity. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of ironic that Norfolk Southern was one um, where the the relatively new CEO actually spoke up about, you know, breaking this, I mean, these weren't his exact words, but kind of breaking that stranglehold of um, of uh, investor-driven, um, you know, short-term profit chasing. And um, the CEO, uh, you know, essentially acknowledged that there's problems with that model and that Norfolk Southern is uh, committed to doing things differently. And, you know, I'm sure making that change takes time. So if he's really genuine about that, um, yeah, I mean, maybe they'll still see some some changes there. But, um, uh, but yeah, to get, oh yeah, the private equity. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just the model. You know, you could say this about schools, about healthcare, like it just doesn't on the most basic level make sense that um, a system will benefit from as much profit being squeezed out of it and diverted from it as possible. Like that, that seems like a pretty basic concept to grasp um, when you could be, you know, when you have investors who their sole motivation is getting profit versus, um, you know, an industry that could use, uh, has sort of an end endless uh, need for more investment to be um, rolled back into it. You know, it, it's pretty obvious, like what would make a better system, I think. And, you know, more regulation regulations as well. And you write that railroad workers and experts alike say the four major carriers are failing to uphold one of the regulatory mandates that does still bind them. The common carrier obligation to provide transportation or service on reasonable Request. Shippers argue that the major rail companies are effectively 
denying service to customers through their limited options for shipping, line abandonment, and the railroad's use of embargoes on certain shipments caused in part by worker shortages. Unlike electric utility and power companies, which go through lengthy regulatory proceedings to close power plants or develop transmission lines, railroads have few checks on such decisions. So, okay, here's a regulation that we have in place, the common carrier uh, obligation. What explains the lack of enforcement of the common carrier obligation? And is the problem, is that the problem right now that, sure, we might have regulations on the books, but there's no enforcement because I'm concerned that we'll have new regulations put on the books. People will smile. They'll get a huge photo opportunity. And then again, they'll never be enforced. Right. I mean, that's such a great point. And um, the railroads were deregulated in 1980 and at some other with some other uh uh, legislation. Um, so, you know, a lot of regulations that used to govern them have been gutted, but even so, there are regulations on the railroads, um, including this common carrier obligation. Um, there are regulations that are, you know, basically not being enforced. Uh, mergers and other big actions that they take need to be approved by the government, and they almost always are approved without uh, much demands or scrutiny. Um, so, like at those April hearings I mentioned, and um, after the strike, uh, uh, Buttigieg and you know the administration have um, demanded that the railroads shape up and and draft sort of improvement plans and make other changes. And um, then with this derailment, um, Michael Reagan with the EPA is really um, you, you know demanding that Norfolk Southern clean it up, or else they'll use the Superfund and and have to pay uh, the the company will have to reimburse the government threefold for the cleanup cost. Um, so the administration is um, taking a tougher line on the railroads, but uh, yeah, I mean what that will actually mean, how that will play out, how that will change if we have. Um, uh, someone else in the White House um, and, you know, Congress changes next time. Um, so there's still a lot of, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have regulations on the books and another to have them really enforced. Um, so that's that's an open question, too. Carrie, you're very lucky and I like you very much. And that's why I'm giving you two questions from hell. Yeah. Carrie Light, our guest is journalist Carrie Leiterson. She wrote the In These Times article, The Case for Nationalizing the Railroads. Workers say now is the time to do the impossible. You can follow Carrie on Twitter at Carrie Leiterson1, and you can find out more about her at her website, CarrieLeiterson.net. You write it, 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 how President Harry Truman, for example, essentially took federal control of private infrastructure and operations when he briefly nationalized the steel industry in 1952 to avoid a steelworkers' strike during the Korean War. The Wage Stabilization Board had already ordered a wage increase for steelworkers, but the steel companies refused to comply unless they were allowed to significantly raise prices, a demand that Trump denied. The day before 600,000 steelworkers were set to strike, Truman Truman invoked emergency powers to seize the industry and keep the mills running. The union supported the move, but the companies were outraged. The case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the justices, including liberals appointed by Truman and Roosevelt, decided 6-3 to three in the 1952 Youngstown Steel and Tube Company versus Sawyer case that Truman's takeover was illegal. The current conservative uh, Supreme Court that we have right now could rule sim similarly if uh, nationalization of the rail industry were to face legal challenges. So our question from hell for you, our first one, the mm -hmm. question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, is railway nationalization dead in the water until, well, 
some of today's current justices are themselves dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we- that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it may be, um, you know, of course, uh, court case would have to be brought and make it like say nationalization happened, you'd have to have a court case brought, make its way up to the Supreme Court. So that would take a while. So maybe there would be a window where we could uh, see how it plays out. But um, I mean, I guess the short answer to your question is probably yes. <laughs> that was good uh, good insight you had there, Also, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, one other thing that you point out is that during uh, the pandemic, the railways, like a lot of industry, had record profits, but it wasn't just the pandemic that was going on as all the shippers were complaining. It it was also the unreliability of uh, what was happening with freight lines. So how, or what does it say about capitalism if during the pandemic, during a national, global crisis, an unreliable industry could be recording record profits? What does it say about capitalism? Uh, I guess it says that capitalism is kind of messed up. <laughs> that is the most. Answer? Yeah, no, that is the most <laughs> concise, best. This is hell. A uh, question from hell answer we've had in a long time. Carrie, thank you so much for being back on our show. You know you'll be back on again, whether you like it or not. So I'm looking forward to speaking with great. you again. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Uh, yeah, you too. Have a good weekend. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is simply this. Where do you see yourself in five years? Over at Facebook, Borky B says bitter, blind, broken, captive. <laughs> hey, look, he's got the same genetic issues I have. That's right. Bogey G answers, hopefully, <laughs> syphilis-free. We're all hoping for that. Bogey G dreaming big. <laughs> I know, really? Kim G says, I've goalessly never have had an answer to this question, and I see myself not having an answer to this question five years from now. Yeah, that's probably the case with everybody. That's true. Nicholas E says, answering the week's question from heaven... Mm-hmm. Lucky you. I guess they're going to be in heaven, or is it going to be the question from heaven? I don't know, but this show is never going to be called This is Heaven. All right, so we'll have to go with the latter. <laughs> yeah. Pete V says, sitting on the patio at Carrie's, having a beer with Chuck. Oh. Uh, that's a little too uh, spot on. Yeah, Garrett L says, in the mirror, wondering how I got here. <laughs> Chuck, you do it to yourself. <laughs> I know. It's like a lightning rod. They just get all excited. <laughs> Uh, you say don't answer it a certain way, and then you yeah. get three answers that way. I've never seen them more electrified. <laughs> SLS piles on with in your mom's mirror. SLS is awesome, and thank you, SLS, for all the great support you've shown for the show. That's the high road there. Yeah. Judy S. says, wow, we just moved to Denton, Texas after 42 years in the Chicago area. I'm on another planet. I say this as a native Texan. I don't know where that puts Judy exactly in five years. Are they going to move back? It's a nice slice of life. John T., probably still waiting for them to finish replacing the utility (laughs) pole outside my back door. I like that personal response. Yeah. uh, Over Twitter way, we got text of the matter. who says, hopefully back behind the board at This Is Hell. California is overrated. Love, Egon. Egon Sheely. Thank you very much, Egon. We got some This Is Hell alumni in in our responses. M50 says, I never do. 
may never see themselves in five years. <laughs> All right. Okay. Edison K says cackling at the bloodthirsty mob of Nova Scotians as the hangman calculates my weight. <laughs> Nova Scotians? Yeah. I assume that he's in Nova Scotia, not Maybe. that there's going to be some invasion of Nova Scotians into the United States. And, you know, I hear they're rolling across the border like oranges right now. It has now. a lyrical quality to <laughs> it, it when you say Nova Scotian. It does sound great. Stephen A says uh, on a farm road in Texas, which is a response to the clip art that we hastily put up to uh, <laughs> to this week's question from hell. Chris K says swimming to the store in 120 <laughs> degree heat, getting more masks. <laughs> That's, That's a right. good one. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All right. Uh, we got Yarrow M who says, I can't even come up with a funnier witty answer. It's getting bleak out here. It's true. We've all kind of got that uh, come and see stare these days. <laughs> D- Dean T says, wandering around aimlessly through a horrible hellscape. So, essentially no change. Ah. Cool. Uh, Elliot S. in a death camp. <laughs> Elliot S. is rocking some rough chuckles. Wow. Within wow. a death camp. Wow. And uh, let's see. Finally, white trash. Tom brings us home with... The other side of nowhere. <laughs> I like that one too. Very poetic. Uh, put aside the swimming at the store one because I did not see that one earlier. We'll put that amongst our will favorites do, for this do. week. So uh, the person with our favorite answer gets whatever they want from the This Is Hell site when you click on support. Dan, what's Jeff up to during this week's Moment of Truth, which is coming up in just a couple of seconds? I tell you, Jeff, this week is going to kick Roll Doll again while he's down. Awesome. You are listening to the world broadcast premiere of this week's This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. We're broadcast every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Chicago time. Today, uh, we are participating again in our home station's annual phone phonathon fundraiser, the one time, or two times, because we do it on two consecutive Saturdays every year that we ask you to show your support for WNUR and Evan Stoner's show your support for WNUR. It is your community station. Phonathon ensures that our station, along with its 400 plus students and staff, can continue to be a voice and guiding light for underrepresented tastes and to be a place where generations of Northwestern students can form friendships lasting a lifetime. Without dedicated support from our community of listeners, we would not be able to provide the diverse delightful programming that we all love this year your support matters more than ever and i don't know how delightful it is to listen to this is hell but it sure is informative and enlightening it makes me feel better support completely commercial free independent college radio now by visiting wnur.org donate where you can find all of the donation tiers plus all the stuff you can get from donating like, well, the lowest level is you get a surprise. It might be a vintage sticker, a postcard, a fridge magnet, or airwaves for your hairwave CD. The next level up, you can get the WNUR die-cut sticker by Northwestern artist Hannah Borishov. And then there's the next level of a WNUR short sleeve t-shirt by Northwestern artist Cora Pancoast. There's the classic WNUR orange beanie at the next level. Then you are tote bag at the very next level decided designed by yet another Northwestern artist, Sarah Welford. The WNUR hoodie that's also designed by a Northwestern artist by the name of Gemma DeCetra. Or a hand-picked vinyl record CD from NUR's archive. Check out all the donation tiers now by going to WNUR.org slash donate and show your support for WNUR which has been airing This Is Hell for over 26 years. 
And as it is fundraiser February, our latest station to join the This Is Hell family is CKUW-FM, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. And they are in the midst of their fun drive. CKUW is a uh, nonprofit, volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air paid advertising as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit CKUW.ca where you will see all of their donation levels. And apologies to everybody in Winnipeg, all you Winnipeggers, because last week during the interview with Scott Price from CKUW, I mentioned how it was was my belief that Winnipeg was a military town. But Scott seemed to be surprised by that. And I was like, well, there's the NHL team, the Winnipeg Jets. There's the CFL team, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I would just assume that would mean it's a military town. But I've been corrected by a few people from Winnipeg who all say, it's not military, Dan, it's aerospace. And, you know, those two things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, it's a subtle difference. Yeah. (laughs) Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Hmm? Hmm. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell, and Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. Revisiting Willy Wonka's racism. Hi, in the background you might hear the sounds of the ongoing power tool and mariachi mariachi polka on the radio festival. That's live radio. It's quite a coincidence that right on the heels of my moment of truth about world leaders dissolving in bathtubs, a kerfuffle has arisen about making the language and role doll less offensive to today's children or their legal guardians. I'm not a big fan of censoring the past. Atrocities of yore should be preserved in, me- in museums for study, like the flag of the Confederacy or Robespierre's final lobster bib. But in this case, I agree with making doll sanitary for today's little baby liberal snowflakes. Hear me out. Parents are raising their children to frown on bullying. No one ever liked bullies, and we had plenty of bullies when I was growing up. Had there been the weight of common moral discourse on the victim's sides, our lives might have been a little less horrible. Some of us might even have enjoyed athletics instead of being bullied out of participating in them. I myself might have been less of a bully about the things I'm a bully about. Then again, I might not be as attracted to women who resemble Irish bullies in The Little Rascals, which would be a minor tragedy. Aside from the tight controls imposed on a child's time and location, and of course the mass shootings, especially in schools, almost everything I perceive of how children are being raised seems better today than when Roald Dahl was writing endearingly about transporting pygmies in crates with holes in them. I'll explain in a second. Progressive values seem to have made it a better time to grow up than when I did. Yes, I resent it because I was raised to resent first and feel empathic joy only after a period of forcing myself to swallow my gigantic, jagged pride. 
Roald Dahl has been criticized for his old-school social attitudes since his writing was first published, and his already published work was edited for unpleasant content by his own hand, no less, back in the 70s, so this is not new. When the NAACP first called out the racism in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he said he felt they were acting like Nazis. He had to be convinced by a concerned literary friend to make a big change. It's a good thing she prevailed on him to realize that a British capitalist housing live-in imported African labor in his factory was offensive rather than adorable. Dow altered Charlie and the Chocolate Factory accordingly, and it was for the and it was it wasn't for the Gene Wilder movie. It was three years after that came out. It's called Fixing It. As I mentioned in the moment of truth, dissolving leadership. In original editions of the book, unlike in the movie, the Oompa Loompas are portrayed by illustrator Joseph Schindelman as diminutive black Africans. They wear animal skin mini togas, even in the chocolate factory, where they live and work and sing like happy little slaves in an artificial wilderness-come-garden of Eden, having been rescued from jungle squalor by the white savior capitalist Wonka and compensated for their labor with all the chocolate they could eat. Yes, along with his racism, avowed anti-Semitism, and pro-colonial capitalist triumphalism, there was and remains plenty inherent in Dahl worth repairing. He was a weird and imaginative guy whose imagination somehow failed to foresee a world in which not all his readers would be white and English. White, English, Church of England, upper class, and sympathetic to the idea that British imperialism was a civilizing influence on the areas of the world from which it extracted wealth. He was slightly less enlightened in that respect than even Rudyard Kipling or Queen Victoria. Dahl definitely intended the words fat and ugly to be derogatory and signify a lack of good breeding. And if it allows more people to enjoy his work than ordinarily would have, other expressions can be found, and they should be found. In James and the Giant Peach, after the untimely death of his parents, the relatives James has to live with are a species of chavvy class caricature that was always offensive in post-war 20th century England. In the J.K. Rowling universe, incidentally, the lower middle brow muggle relatives who raised the orphaned Harry Potter were cut from the same tacky fabric. The nasty, rude, overweight, unattractive substitute family is a well-worn trope in these narratives of the orphaned special child. It's like the way wicked stepsisters in countless fairy tales lack the natural grace and innate etiquette of the heroine. It's not unusual to find in Dahl equally disagreeable characterizations of women, other races, and working people. Free speech absolutists complain about sanitizing and bowdlerizing his work. Hey, Shakespeare, he ain't. He was a festering pit of elitist garbage ideas. All right, so a little like Shakespeare, but not canon. Generations haven't committed his words to memory, thank Oberon. He could well use a delousing, never mind a sanitizing, F that guy. Clean up his retrograde bigotry and make his writing fit for human consumption. When I was a kid, it was very strange to me at first when the Gene Wilder movie came out with its orange-skinned, jodhpur-wearing, Gilbert O'Sullivan-coiffed Oompa Loompas because the edition of the book we read in school, 
I'm old, contained the deepest, darkest part of the African jungle where no white man had ever been before, origin of the Oompa Loompas, who, it was vaguely hinted, were not only incredibly fond of chocolate, but might even have been partly made of it. I grew up just two miles north of Detroit, where race was not an issue one had no opinion on, even as a kid. I understood a bit, even then, why they'd excised the jungle caricatures for the movie, but only recently researched and found that Dahl himself had changed them a few years after the movie's release, from chocolatey hobbits to some kind of golden-haired, whimsical folk from an island somewhere in an absurdly named region of one of Earth's oceans. Yet even in this, there's a hint of xenophobia against rural Germanic Scandinavians in his remedy caricatures. They smell a little bit like the murderous cultists in the movie Midsommar. His disdain for the Nordic via the Germans and their imperialist gluttony is understandable considering his childhood in the 1930s. But Augustus Gloop doesn't wear the allegorical significance as comfortably as he used to and now reads as just the author saying mean things about a kid with an eating disorder. The current discussion of Roald Dahl's unpleasant attitudes mostly ignores the five, at least, preceding decades of discussion of his unpleasant attitudes about people of other genders, races, religions, economic classes, ethnicities, etc. And I don't understand why. The guy was a cesspit, albeit an imaginative and now dead cesspit. Granted, this has everything to do with whatever Netflix deal his estate is getting ready to make, is in the process of making, or has already made. Well, I'd love for kids to read his work without absorbing their author's odious habits of judgment, and without parents recoiling at how much nastier the books are than their screen versions. Dahl really is a great storyteller, despite himself. In my opinion, though, these breaches of kindness are not the equivalents of Mark Twain's use of the n-word in huckleberry finn which elucidate as far as twain was able something revealing about the united states slavers argot that needs not to be hidden the fact that the word strikes the present-day reader as even more offensive now underscores his purposes all the more boldly twain had his foibles as a social commentator but he approached the society with an eye to inclusiveness his humanist impulse is evident in spite of his failures. Dahl, on the other hand, had no such inclusive impulse. His impulses were exclusionary. He was an almost reflexive bigot. He needs to be rescued from himself so generations can enjoy what was good in the vile, dyspeptic bastard's work. Now if we can just get J.K. Rowling to stop denigrating trans people long enough to revise the anti-Semitically caricatured goblin characters who run all the wizard world's banks. Maybe if I wave this wand. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So you're telling me you had an issue with the Ferengis and Star Trek Next Generation as well? No, I didn't because they were supposed to be Armenians. <laughs> 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 so uh jeffy uh oh wait have you seen the uh german all quiet on the western front movie i have not because someone took a i mean i had netflix on somebody else's account and now it's gone is it 
Because well, well, no, 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 not the movie. Netflix. Netflix. I, I know that. No, no, I know that because I didn't know if my next. No, damn, I was going to go watch it on Netflix this weekend. I have somebody else's account as well. But yeah, oh, that, that doesn't. You might not be. You know, it was just. It was a. It was a question of of money. That got the most uh, nominations in at the BAFTAs, which I was kind of surprised about. Which is great. It sounds great, it and sounds I will fantastic. watch it when I, you know, when I can watch it on someone else's TV. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll come to Chicago <laughs> yes. and see it. <laughs> yeah, feel free. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Also, uh, how about that uh, ongoing debate over whether we should have Seymour Hirsch on the show or not? That's been kind of crazy. Yesterday, I got uh, four emails. No, one, <laughs> two, three, four, five emails about it. And it was split three to two against having Seymour on the show. And hmm. still... Our vote total is 50-50, so that's really helping me decide, isn't it? I'm gonna, We're going to piss off half of the audience if we have Seymour Hirsch on the show, and we're going to make half the audience very happy. Well, I, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> it's also a big happy. maybe. I don't think anybody's happy one one way or the other if you're talking about Seymour Hirsch. <laughs> whatever he says, if you have him on, he's going to say you know, sad, horrible things, and that'll make everybody angry. But, you know, because, you know, that's what he reports on atrocities that's what he does but uh you know i was thinking about that 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 stovepipe article that i sent you from the from 2003 in the in the new yorker and it was criticized at the time for having uh unnamed sources but it turns out to all have been true right see so 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 i mean i think the habit of criticizing him for unnamed sources started before he started being really wrong, abusing it, if he did abuse it. And I'm not sure, maybe it wasn't a, like some project. I'm not sure he's not even being um, gaslighted about a lot of things. And the, 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 uh, the other thing that gets me is a lot of people have said, well, you should have Seymour Hirsch on the show because he's Seymour Hirsch. You know how well that worked out for us when we had Ralph Nader on the show? Nobody listened. <laughs> <laughs> the guy was a dullard. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, that, you, we all knew that, that Nader was not an inspiring speaker. I mean, I mean, he's an inspiring guy. Yes, and writer. Reports is his most inspiring byproduct. All right, Jeff. Does it help me buy my car? <laughs> it sure did, because uh, you get Corvairs real cheap nowadays. Oh, yeah, man, They're dirt cheap, mint condition. <laughs> Jeffy. Yes, sir. Until next time. Oh, yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Listeners, if you want to get in on that conversation about Cy Hirsch being on the show or not, just send us an email, message us via Facebook, or direct message us via Twitter. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with our listeners the rest of their answers. This week's question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? We have one response under the wire from Craig S. over at Patreon, who says, still sanding old paint off the shelf. <laughs> I kind of like that, too. It's like waiting for that utility pole yeah. that somebody else mentioned. Uh, so the answers I liked most were, and Dan, feel free to chime in, uh, Neil C. saying, not in a hot air balloon. That's where he sees himself <laughs> in five years. Uh, Ty S. saying, restocking shelves at the Guantanamo Bay gift shop. That's pretty spectacular. I did like Craig's answer of still sanding old paint off this shelf. Uh, Somebody who calls themselves, and we do not call them this, 
But White Trash Tom saying the other side of nowhere. Mike the Giga Grouch saying, if I'm not a smoldering pile of radioactive waste or ash by then, I'll probably still be trying to come up with a witty response to the question from hell. Dean T saying, wandering around aimlessly through a horrible hellscape, so essentially no change. Bogey G saying, hopefully syphilis free. We all have high hopes, Bogey. Uh, Nick E saying, answering this week's question from heaven. Garrett L, I'm just mentioning you because you're one of three people who said in the mirror and that led to SLS's, I think, better answer in your mom's mirror. Uh, John T saying probably still waiting for them to finish replacing that utility pole outside my back door. Who said swimming to the store? What was that? Chris K said swimming to the store in 100 degree heat to get more masks. (laughs) So that makes this week's winner. Dan? You're going to give it to Chris K? Let's do it. Chris K, swimming to the store in 120-degree heat to get more masks. Chris K, thank you very much. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. Go to thisishell.com, click on support, and then tell us what you want. Send us an email, and we'll get it in the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I'm hoping to not be a victim of the nuclear war we seem to be headed toward with Russia breaking the final nuclear weapons treaty with the United States and the United States expanding its military presence uh, toward China, and China now saying they might arm Russia in its war with Ukraine. So if that nuclear apocalypse does not happen, in five years I see myself five years closer to death. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. You are listening. You are listening to the world broadcast premiere of this week's This Is Hell on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment. We are broadcast every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Chicago time. Today, we are participating in our home station's annual Phonathon fundraiser, the one time every year that we ask you to show your support for WNUR, completely non-commercial and independent radio that has been part of the Northwestern and Evanston communities for generations. This is Hell simply would not exist if it was not for Chicago Sound Experiment, and we truly appreciate the incredible support of everyone, community, and students alike at WNUR over the 26 plus years they have been airing on we have been airing on WNUR. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio by visiting WNUR.org slash donate. And as it is fundraiser February, our latest station to join the This Is Hell family is CKUWFM, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, and they're in the midst of their fun drive. CKOW is a non-profit, volunteer-run organization, and it does not air paid advertising as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKOW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. So show your support for CKUW at ckuw.ca. Dan, we currently have two of our guests confirmed for next week. Who are the guests that we have confirmed? Well, I know we'll have on Dan Colbert to talk about their... their book that's the first question is it colbert or colbert yeah yeah we'll have to ask them his sister is the national book award winning writer elizabeth colbert who wrote the sixth extinction 
That's which is really neat. an amazing book. Is like a, a Wes Anderson family of geniuses. Yeah, anyway, and this guy's at home. Uh, this guy's a construction worker. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. I always wondered if construction workers would get uh, ideas about how uh, maybe a house could be built. Exactly, <laughs> it makes sense. And they've written about that in their uh, article. Pretty good house, a guide to creating better homes. Pretty good house provides a framework and set of guidelines for building or renovating a high-performance home that focuses on its inhabitants and the environment, but keeps in mind that few people have pockets deep enough to achieve a perfect solution. The essential idea is for homeowners to work within their financial and practical constraints, both to meet their own needs and to do as much for the planet. We also have returning to the show... We're going to have Liz Theo Harris. Uh, They just posted their Nation article, We're Living in a Golden Age of Plenty for the Rich, conspicuously absent from this year's World Economic Forum, was one of the most pressing issues of our time, which the elite uh, gathered... Uh, are chiefly responsible for creating. She is co-director of the Kairos Center as well as a founder and coordinator of the Poverty Initiative and the national co-director of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. You may remember she's on the show last year to talk about her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. So that'll be nice to have her back. On this week's Patreon, it's the return of This Week in Hell, which is what I got out of this week's guests and shows and may not be what you got out of our shows or guests this week. And I had no idea that what I would be learning about this week was death, hatred, hypocrisy, greed, which is not what I thought we would be talking about when speaking with Aswan Subsang about the President Trump re-election campaign, or when we spoke with Prem Thacker about what was happening on the ground in the East Palestine, Ohio community, which was just devastated by a toxic train derailment, or when we were going to talk to Carrie Leiterson about the possibility of nationalizing the railroads. Okay, I knew we were going to be talking about death with Asuwin because he had written about Trump's desire for more and more executions, including firing squads, but I didn't know that would turn into a conversation about the role death and the threat of death by invoking the fear of God plays in Republican Party policies and politics and conservatism as well, more generally. And I realized that bloodlust is driven by hate, but I did not know that the train derailment had become just another crisis that far-right conspiracy theorists could use to spread hate. Nor did I know that derailment was primarily driven by greed and the popularity of greed in the United States, as uh, Carrie Leiterson was explaining to us. Or, for that matter, the hypocrisy of both major political parties in the U.S. blaming the other for stuff they themselves do. So on Patreon Thursday at patreon.com slash thisishell, it's all about death, hatred, hypocrisy and greed, which seems to be the foundation of American politics today. Also on Patreon, we will be sharing an interview from March 8th, 2014, when we spoke with Nikolai Petro, who at the time was professor of comparative and international politics at the University of Rhode Island, and a current, and he was a, at that time, a current Fulbright research scholar in Ukraine. He had just posted the article at The Nation titled, Threat of Military Confrontation Grows in Ukraine Unless the Country Embraces the Ideal of Cultural Pluralism Within One Nation Embraces, uh, Within One Nation, uh, crises like this one will continue to erupt. It seems every time any Biden administration official or their parrots in the U.S. media mention Ukraine, they are required to say that the current war there was, quote unquote, completely unprovoked. Yet in 2005, 
2007, 2014, we had conversations on the show saying that a war between Ukraine and Russia was increasingly inevitable. So how can a war be unprovoked yet inevitable? Find out during this week's Patreon podcast, but the only way you can hear any of that is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Will Ippen for sitting in with us today. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. To Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Sebastian Vupper for another past inside the present. To Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston just because. And we are looking forward to next week as we will be introducing you further to our newest producer, Will. Hang out with me, members of the This Is Hell crew and other This Is Hell listeners during miserable weather this evening for office hours our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on avenue in chicago's west ridge neighborhood which has returned to its regular wednesday evening time beginning around six and going until at least 10 drop by join us and if you do i'll give you a book that's this is hell office hours every wednesday evening starting around six and running until 10 at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on avenue in chicago's west ridge neighborhood and because the weather is going to be so miserable We'll probably give you a tour of the studio as well. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.